Hey guys, we've been gone for a while. We're excited to be back. We're going to hit it off with uh, Shang-Chi into two parts. Part one is going to be an analysis and a breakdown of the movie. And part two is going to be theories, tokens, and symbols found in Shang-Chi. So without further ado, enjoy. Welcome to Forge Comics. Your one-stop shop for discovering more about comic book characters, stories, and general analysis of these epic tales. So join us on this journey across mediums and multiverses to learn more about the amazing world of comics. I'm Trey. This is Jojo. And I'm Petey. Welcome back. So we're going to talk today, uh, as you can tell by the title of this episode, we're going to talk about Shang-Chi and we're going to focus on the movie. And we did read a little bit of Shang-Chi comics to give context. So we'll hit on that a little bit later. So just a fair warning, uh, full spoilers ahead. Uh, if you don't want to hear any spoilers, just go watch the movie. It was great. So Shang-Chi opens with some Backstory exposition by his mother about the relatively unknown history of the Ten Rings, which belonged to Wenwu, Shang-Chi's father, and about a thousand years of just kind of being a dominant force in Asia. Uh, just taking out, you know, not not playing a major role in, you know, the evolution of historical events, but being there and definitely coming to power and wealth and all of that. And I guess my question for you guys is, did they give you enough here? to pique your interest in the rings or would you have liked to have seen more backstory on Wenwu? It was about five to eight minutes of screen time. It felt like it felt substantially long. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I would say it definitely piqued my interest. I think the only thing that kept coming back to me as far as my interest level with it was I never really understood like how they worked from this introduction, they don't really explain the power sources. And I think that's kind of the whole mystery of it all. Um, I think they do a good job of showing that they're very powerful, showing that he uses them to basically conquer the world and the underground. I think it did enough just for me to kind of bite onto it and be interested without feeling like it revealed too much. Definitely set up the tone for the rest of the, the rest of the movie. Yeah. I think with this movie, there's so many uh, elements being introduced that, it might have been too much. And honestly, I didn't feel like I missed anything. It definitely felt like this is something that they can play on in the long run, which, I mean, we'll talk about later. But we saw after the trailer that that's kind of the setup anyway. Um, so it was enough, I think, that um, propelled the movie, but it didn't like kick it off its tracks and deviate from the most important stuff. Can I make one addition to that that I thought was really cool? I love that the first five to eight minutes of this movie um, is all with subtitles. I really enjoyed that they brought in that Chinese culture by bringing in the language, because if you are a fan of Kung Fu movies, you are very familiar with the idea of having to watch movies subtitles, because a lot of the times they don't dub it. Um, that's the same case with anime. So I thought that was a very good way of uh, tastefully bringing it into the general audience so they can kind of get that same feel that, okay, this is... Um, going to be respectful of the kung fu genre, which I thought it was. Yeah, that's a great point about the subtitles there. So following that exposition, we move to modern day San Francisco, where we meet uh, a Shang-Chi that could, could fairly be described as uh, underachieving at this point. He's working as a valet with his best friend, Aquafina. Uh, her name in the movie is Katie, but at the end of the day, Aquafina is always Aquafina, and I think we all love her for that. But she plays a, a specific role, whether she's you know, being portrayed by Danny DeVito or vice versa, whatever whatever the role was confused to be. And then Jumanji, she's still always the same. And they're on their way to their job as valets when Shang is confronted by a group of ninjas led by a villain dubbed Razor Fist on a bus and he is as ridiculous as he sounds giant sword coming out of his wrist. And at this point, Shang reveals the full scope of his martial arts abilities that had previously been a secret. And, and I have to say, this is definitively for me, one of the greatest fight scenes the MCU has offered. So where, in you guys' opinion, where does that bus scene rank among, among the fights that, that you can come up with? I, on top of? I personally thought it was the best fight scene. Um, I think there's kind of two, 
two paths we can take as far as discussing fight scenes in the MCU. One of them is obviously like the CGI elements and the effects elements, and the other one's like the actual fighting choreography. And I thought that this, as far as fighting choreography, was elevated to such a level and then just had enough of those CGI elements that just kind of like really boosted it. But the most notable ones that I have in my mind as far as choreography is probably um, Captain America versus the Winter Soldier, Captain America in the elevator scene. Um, I thought Black Widow had a lot of great uh, fighting scenes. Um, And then... If we go to the other side of that spectrum, as far as like CGI, I thought like the Titan fight was really cool, um, where they're obviously fighting Thanos and they almost get it. So I thought that was kind of cool how they were able to add a lot of elements. But this by far, I think it, it blows all of the, the other ones out of the water. This was number one for me. One thing that sets this movie apart is the fact that it doesn't have the backing of the other character development. Um, we see basically a very underachieving character come out of nowhere with this big fight scene. Um, I think one of the things I really enjoyed about it too is how many superhero movies do we see where they're basically trying to stop a train or stop a bus or save people from a train or a bus. It's a very common trope. And I like that we still get that same feeling with this, uh, but with a very different twist with the Kung Fu. And then at the same time, we get it with the juxtaposition of Aquafina's character, who you think is going to do some heroic act to stop the train, but instead she just runs over like an entire street worth of cars. So like you get this amazing fight scene, one of, in my opinion, the best fight scene we've had in the MCU on a small level like this. And then you get the, like I said, the juxtaposition of her destroying an entire basically city street. Most so, of which the cars, most of which were uh, BMWs, and it's very obvious yeah. that BMW <laughs> paid, paid a lot of money to have Aquafina destroy several of their vehicles, as is kind of a recurring theme, almost as prevalent as the Kung Fu at a certain point. <laughs> there were a lot of BMWs in this movie. And if I could add one thing, what I liked about this, because the movie does, it does go big at a certain point. There are a lot of CGI effects and fantastical things and creatures, but For me, the takeaway from this movie is Shang-Chi as a character is grounded in this fight. He's a street-level martial artist, and I've just become a huge Simu Liu fan over the past week. And I saw the movie a second time, I believe two days ago, after watching a lot of his other work. And I think he did a ton of that bus scene on his own. Like, sometimes they'll creatively cut the actor's face out, and they'll get behind them, and like, a huge percentage of that fight was shot right in his face. So he was doing those things. And I that's probably been a very specialized day where everybody has a double and the doubles do most of the most of the heavy lifting in that regard. And I think that was super impressive to me. So as a character, it it's kind of established where he's gonna fit into the Marvel universe as far as abilities go. And then as an actor, I thought it was just an impressive thing to be able to add to his calling card as he's clearly just at the beginning of his career. I think you you saying that it was grounded. I I think that's where Black Widow kind of missed the mark. There was great there was great fighting scenes, but it felt a little too too over the top, a little too like too fast, too furious. Um, kind of that where it's just like, eh, it's cool, but how realistic is it? Like, not necessarily. There was street level fighting um, choreography, but it was always overdone with with a lot of elements, which stakes the stakes I mean, got so high, right? You know, I, yeah, yeah. And I think this movie does such a good level of it was kind of a there was a nice dichotomy between the street level fighting and then obviously the the elements that got brought in later with the mythological creatures and stuff. So, and how many fight scenes could you just take in a vacuum and show somebody without showing any of the movie previous? or after that, and them immediately know where this was taking place. I love that they built the San Francisco geography into that fight. Like, there's nowhere else in this country, basically, that a train, like a bus, whatever that was, is going to just roll downhill on streets for several miles. Like, that's just San Francisco. So they worked that into the fight, and that was part of why the stakes were were high. I thought that was a really good part of it, honestly. Any other thoughts on that? Perfect. 
All right, so we do find out that those ninjas were trying to steal the green amulet that he had been given by his mother uh, previous to her death, and they successfully take that, and Shang and Katie end up heading to China to find and warn his sister, Shaoling. Uh, here we're treated to a pretty cool cameo from both Wong, uh, a major character in Doctor Strange, and Abomination, who's had a little bit of a redesign from his time in The Incredible Hulk, but he was portrayed by the same actor, and um, his... His face was kind of where they reworked the CGI a little bit, and he looks a lot more like his comic book counterpart. But that kind of makes sense even in the MCU, as he was a character who was hyper-exposed to radiation, and it, it does make sense that his mutation would develop further over, you know, what's several, you know, maybe even 10 years in the MCU. So it was really cool to see them come into the movie and, and obviously have some kind of future. But they're initially fighting in kind of the fight club that they've walked into, but ultimately, after, afterwards, as a result, you see that they're, they're more likely to be training as there's kind of a back and forth about how they could fight better and more efficiently and working towards some larger goal. Uh, shortly after this fight, Shang ends up fighting with his sister in the fight club, losing, and then finding out that she actually owns and runs the fight club. After a quick back and forth where they sort of catch up, but not real warm and fuzzy as you find out that Shang had, Shang had left her when he escaped his father's regime. The entire operation ends up being invaded by ninjas. Uh, Shang and his sister ultimately end up working together to get out of the, the building, saving Katie a couple times, but falling captive to, to their father, who brings them back to China, where he explains his ultimate goal of resurrecting their mother from the, her sanctuary home in Talo, where she, where she was originally and where he had met her. Uh, it, one point of, of emphasis here is when their father did catch them, and their father uh, being Wen Wu, he, he wasn't like capturing them throwing them in jail it was like oh good we're all reunited which was an interesting and kind of unexpected reaction i think i don't know if too many people expected you know a father who sends an army of ninjas to capture his kids to just be happy to see them and meet, greet them with a hug so i thought that was interesting um did you guys have any thoughts on the fight between abomination and wong in the fight club and where do you think they went after leaving so my first thought is I wish they wouldn't have shown it in the trailer. <laughs> um, yeah, that was interesting. I do think it was a it was a big enough of a reveal to show Abomination again and show that we're acknowledging the Incredible Hulk again in the MCU because that movie does get overlooked so much uh, because of the cast change and some of the other issues with it. Although I still enjoy that movie. Uh, but because of the cast change and everything, they have kind of swept it under the rug to some extent. So I like that they brought Abomination back for that. Uh, he's obviously a classic Hulk villain. So bringing him back in as kind of a cameo is a really good way of introducing him to the MCU and saying, hey, we're going to do stuff more with this character. My guess is what we're going to see happen is I think Wong is somehow almost like a Suicide Squad type thing where he's got Abomination under some sort of deal that he'll help train him so that they can maybe do some sort of work together um, to reduce a sentence or whatever deal they have worked out. I imagine we're going to see this a lot more fleshed out in She-Hulk in the series. Um, I saw in an interview with Simu Liu, they asked him about this very moment, and he said, you guys will find out soon enough, and that's all I can say. So we're going to get more exposition on that for sure. I liked this scene a lot. I think, again, uh, we see this escalation from the subway scene being a very, very good fight to now this a little bit higher stakes, a little bit scarier fight scene of them now being in a fight club and fighting on the side of a building. It's just a little bit higher stakes, but it feels like a natural and fluid escalation. So I thought this scene was really cool. I thought the bringing in Wong was completely random, but it was good. I'm curious to see what they do with those two characters specifically together, because I would not have paired Wong with Abomination, but I think it worked out well for the show. In a weird way, it it definitely felt like it was a... I wouldn't say like a, a cop-out or like a straight-up copy, but similar to Wong and Abomination, it felt like their relationship was similar to like the Hulk and Thor and Thor Ragnarok. Um, I think it worked well. I didn't feel like it was copying it at all. Um, but I do, I do agree with uh, PD. I do think that they're, I mean, th it, I think that's the obvious answer is, is it's, it's alluding to She-Hulk and, and what's going to happen in that series. Um, but it does get, I, I like that it kind of gives Wong 
more leverage because obviously before Wong felt very much like an afterthought or I wouldn't even consider him like a sidekick it was it <laughs> almost felt like a helping hand to Doctor Strange and so I like that this kind of elevated him and that he's you know he is doing his own kind of missions that he's not always just at the at the um what's the word the beck and call of Doctor Strange yeah, exactly. The back of Doctor Strange. So um, it was it was small but significant enough that it kind of, you know, salivated your taste buds and looking forward to, to seeing more. So, yeah, a couple of couple of thoughts to add. One trivia note, I believe with his appearance in Shang-Chi, Wong now has the most MCU appearances by a single character. I believe, I believe he's now appeared in the most movies. Um, second, I think. That's a great point. I had not thought about She-Hulk. I tend to forget that as an upcoming show. I think there's just so many things coming up that that one just <laughs> I kind of forget about, to be honest, which is too bad because I'm actually kind of excited to meet Jennifer Walters. But I do think uh, I, I was actually expecting something different. My first thought was that, like you mentioned, Abomination was being kind of rehabilitated to, to contribute in some way. But I was actually expecting more of a Thunderbolts appearance. And mm. Uh, Emil Blonsky, which is the alter ego of Abomination, and I'm not sure if he can go back and forth or not at this point. I'm thinking he can know. Uh, I think I don't think he can go back and forth the way the Hulk can. But if you guys remember from the Incredible Hulk, I believe he was a military contractor originally contracted by uh, General Thunderbolt Ross, who ends up being the Red Hulk and also starting the Thunderbolts. So there's a connection there on several levels, and I think if you look at the team that's theoretically being built by forget her name after her whole big introduction whatever her name is the girl from Sinai. Val. Val, yeah Val, yeah val she's now you know let's just uh, let me just assume i'm right for a second that would give her a team so far of a knockoff captain america a knockoff black widow and a knockoff hulk so uh, we're pretty close to a full-on <laughs> knockoff avengers which i don't think i think a thunderbolts team would need a big heavy hitter and i think a rehabilitated kind of ex-military Hulk type figure would be would be a great addition. So that's just my guess. I'd love to uh, revisit this when we find out in the near future. And which would guys... make sense. I was going to say which would make sense because I mean, the, the if you look at the MCU, the blueprint of the Avengers works so well. So why wouldn't you try to copy that same playbook? I mean, it's it's even goes runs deeper than that to like superhero teams in general. You have yeah. to have the big the big tank. You know what I mean? Everybody's got it. Um, yeah, and I agree. Why not just trot back a knockoff Avengers team? I think that'd be interesting. A, fl a bunch of flawed Avengers who fail their first couple of missions. I'd watch the crap out of that. Um, the biggest question I have, and this is a complete sidebar that I would love to discuss later. Is would a Thunderbolts product be a show or a movie? I've said, I, I, I've been wondering that back and I've been going back and forth on that for a while. So actually, I, I want to get your thoughts. We're, we're doing pretty good on time. I... I actually hope that it's a series because I feel like with the character development and to like really make it work, I think you have to kind of take your time for the audience to like build up and really connect to the characters. And I, I mean, I guess you could do that in a movie or a series of movies, but yeah, I think a series personally would be, would be better. I think it works more as a series, too, because the Avengers are able to do it in a movie because I know that they were going to get four or five Avengers movies with that same team. With the Thunderbolts team, it's not like that's going to be the main direction the MCU is going. They're not going to focus all their attention on the Thunderbolts. It's probably going to be kind of off to the side. So it naturally fits in more at Disney+. Plus. I mean, we're not going to see an Infinity War version of Thunderbolts. If it just probably wouldn't reach out to as many people and you're not going to take maybe your six-year-old kid to go see a team of villains. I just, I would love to see it, but I don't see it getting as much marketability as the Avengers. Well, all right, hold on. Wait, they're not villains, so you need to just retract that. Abomination is <laughs> not a villain. He's literally the main villain of the Incredible Hulk. Well, yeah, but I just, I just, I just forced him in there hypothetically. So yeah, I guess you're right. They're more like, they're more like, yeah, I mean, flawed heroes. Yeah, I and mean, he's clearly not a villain at this point. I mean, we're, yeah, he's working with Wong. I personally think the biggest factor, I think we'll know 
let's just assume again that Abomination is in it. I think we'll know after She-Hulk if the if the Disney Plus shows have the budget to CGI someone to that extent, because that right there would be a limiting factor. I don't know if you can CGI up the Hulk for a TV show. You know, I don't know if the return is there. So that that would be an interesting limiting factor. Um, to close that part out, I do think it's worth mentioning. There's a lot of people on the internet that think that when Wong drew his exit circle from kind of the locker room in the Fight Club. There's some evidence that that might have been going back to the raft, which is that super prison. So that would support the idea that he's rehabilitating him. Um, it is worth noting he pretty willingly walked right back in there. So not 100% sure, but I think I think similarly you said it the best. We'll know soon enough. So from there, they're now reunited uh, somewhat against their will with their father, who now has both of the jade necklaces that their mother gave to them before she passed he uh places them as the eyes of a dragon in their in his home in china where it reveals a map to talo which is the sacred city that that she was born in and he had been trying to reach that ever since she had passed away to uh, resurrect her as he believes possible as for shang and shaling they pretty much think he's off his rocker and don't believe it's possible to resurrect her and as a result of kind of rebelling against him yet again, they're imprisoned where they run into Trevor Slattery. And for those of you who remember, he is the actor that portrayed the Mandarin in Iron Man 3. And and I will weigh in here and say I appreciate and respect how the MCU is able to say, like, we messed up. We disrespected the Mandarin, who many people really like as a villain. And we're kind of, we're walking it back and we're giving a lot of screen time. I will say on a personal level, and after having seen the movie twice, I'm 100% sure that this is how I feel. They could have left him there and I would have been fine with it. I actually thought him continuing on with the team through the next phase of their journey was actually really annoying. And I didn't, I didn't enjoy him. It, it broke the, it wasn't comedic relief in the way that I enjoyed Aquafina kind of juxtaposing against the seriousness. It was just kind of grating. The, the way I saw it, because I thought it was really entertaining, but I get I get your point. Like, as far as a crucial element, like, you could take him out and he doesn't do anything, right? I think he replaces, because Aquafina, Katie, gets elevated. She's not just, like, the comedic relief. She actually builds... Mm. on her story gets built on and she has um pretty significant role and so it was like he replaced her for the comedic relief um do i think it was too much maybe a little bit but i thought his jokes were so funny like i i enjoyed it but uh, yeah i i can't say that it's really an element that was necessary in the movie so yeah, yeah, I, I got to agree more with Trey on this one. I really was like, okay, I love having him acknowledged. I thought that was great. Seeing him as like the court jester was great. But let's just leave him as the court jester. Like, don't bring him on this journey. He's not necessary. And I do think I agree with what Jojo's saying, that he kind of fills that comedic relief. But I don't need that comedic relief at that point. Like, it's such an epic fight scene at that moment. And I just kind of want to stay in it. I don't really want to get taken out of it by by the comedy of him like playing dead or something. It was okay. I don't care about you. Like I honestly just go back to so it. Funny though, like, <laughs> and I it is really that part. Like, yeah, I was explaining, but and when he's explaining of how he became an actor, watching the monkeys ride horses. Okay. Yeah, that was that was <laughs> that was that. like that was so well written. I was just like, oh my gosh, this is ridiculously funny. So it's like it's like I'd love to watch like a stand up bit by him, but in like in this movie, it was like okay, like not the time. But but I do agree with you. That's a great point that I missed even. Um, the second time, whereas Katie does get more serious and does get elevated. And we'll talk about whether or not that was, uh, whether that made the movie better or not. But I completely agree with you. She did not remain the comedic relief. And if you felt like you had to have it, he did provide that. So I think it's a great point. Um, one thing I did neglect to mention, right after being kind of reunited with their father, he had a really cool speech about how... He's been called many things, and one of those is the Mandarin. And that was kind of an homage to 
Wen Wu as a character, the father, is a combination of several Marvel villains. And this is kind of a way of he's a very legitimate character. I think by all accounts, he's very popular. He did very well in the role, very critically acclaimed. So they're saying, again, part of their apology and having Trevor Slattery in the movie, we messed up. Here's our second attempt at the Mandarin. Please forgive us. And I respect the MCU's willingness to acknowledge that they kind of dropped the ball there. So. And it was a direct call out to the title itself because he yeah. mentions and he's just like the Mandarin, like a Chinese dish, basically. And so that was kind of like Marvel really showing its cards and be like, yeah, we really dropped the ball. We get that, you know, this in every I, I guess you could say in every um, element of that with the title of the name and the character and re- replacing it with this ridiculous actor they i think just with that one line it was kind of like okay like we we messed up let's just move forward so well that's even calling out the comics historically because he's a decades old character so they're even saying yeah we messed up in the 80s or whatever when we made the mandarin that was offensive like that's a great you're right that's a great point that was a really just top to bottom that dinner scene with wenwu was just phenomenal there were a couple of things that I'll highlight a little bit later, points about Chinese culture that were tapped into that were just excellent. If 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 you were listening closely, he really he really delivered a lot of good nuggets there. And speaking of nuggets, uh, we did neglect to mention that Trevor Slattery and all of his eccentric eccentricities was accompanied by a creature by the name of Morris, which appears to be a six legged rotisserie chicken that can <laughs> speak only to Trevor, uh, which was very you know what if for some reason for half a second you forgot that disney owned marvel there's your reminder right here's a thing that we can make and make stuff and i'm gonna be honest with you it's actually i think it's horrifying it literally looks like a thanksgiving turkey with with wings from raya the dragon and an extra and then legs because it shouldn't even have legs but it has like animal legs and he of course just happens to be from talo with no explanation and can guide them there so they steal a car and they travel there and this I, I have to say this is probably one of two complaints that i have about this movie i'm gonna get to the other complaint later but i and i want to say two complaints for an entire movie is nothing i'm very critical so when i say that this is one of two complaints it's it's pretty minor but how did you guys feel about morris the walking thanksgiving turkey providing such crucial ex- ex- exposition and literally serving as a gps to get them from china to this mythical land which is clearly something that should be very difficult to do what what did you guys think about that i did feel like it was a little cheap like oh really like a little bit of poor writing bit of a cop-out like oh of course yeah that's a little too easy i guess see i feel like it was that was he was more of an important character to me than having trevor slattery come back or whatever like i was like at least it makes sense like a mystical being somehow makes its way to china to the whatever that happens in the ten rings like it's not too far off and it didn't take me out of it at all i don't know why i just like didn't pick up on it i was like okay whatever but i think it was because i was i was pretty off put by how much of a role the old mandarin had in it i was like okay i'm done like (laughs) even the first time watching it i was just like why is he getting in the car with them? Like, stop. Yeah. I don't care about you. <laughs> and I think it was great that he, like, Shang opens the front door and he's sitting in it and he's like, yeah. is it okay if I sit in the front? Because I, like, I get car sick. And you're like, you and Shang are both like, wait, you're coming with us? It was kind of cool to share that moment with the character. Yeah. But again, that's how shocking it was that he was actually going with them. I think everyone had, like, forgotten in so, the intense moment that they're carrying this baggage of an old, what, British man? I don't even know. Yeah, well, and I think I think the moving maze was such a cool concept and the way they showed it was so cool. And then for that to kind of get scrapped by like this myth- mythical creature, like knowing exactly when to turn. I don't know. I, I thought it could have been a little bit cooler in the way that they got through that right maze now. rather than basically a cheat code like you would punch in in like a video game like. <laughs> San Antonio, or uh, what is it called? Grand, Grand Tapato, San Andreas. It's like up, up, down, left. Yeah. And you get like, you get like a, a helicopter ride. And it's like, it's a little, it, it's cool, but kind of ruins the game. 
kind of ruins the moment. Yeah. At the same time, I fully admit that I didn't want to watch them navigate that any longer than they did. So that's kind of where you run into. It's like, did I want it to take longer? No, I think I just wanted a better excuse for them to get there immediately. So I think I would have been okay with like, oh, you're of tallow descent. The gate opens, you know, like that would have worked for me. And I wouldn't have had to watch the turkey give GPS guidance. But, <laughs> and I will say, I thought it was awesome. Actually, my wife pointed this out. So props to her. But Katie, you know, usually the sidekick, friend, whatever, love interest. She's not a love interest, but that role doesn't contribute in a meaningful way. And her skills as a driver, which were tapped into in kind of the first act, coming up super clutch in this moment was awesome. And I want to point that out now because it's going to come up again later. So really cool scene for Aquafina. She nailed the whole thing, the driving, getting directions from a rotisserie chicken. That was all. Well, it was something. We'll see her in Fast and Furious 10. <laughs> oh, that'd be cool. She's, uh, she's Han's sister. They, like, never... merge Disney buys. <laughs> <laughs> hey, have you guys heard they're going to do Fast and Furious in Jurassic Park, apparently? So that's a rumor. What? So if they can do that, they can do Disney. No, I didn't hear any of that, but I need to have... I need more about that later. Yeah, we'll talk later. It's a thing. Um, okay, so once the group arrives in Talo, they meet and train with their mother's family and friends, notably her sister. I think that's really the only person that gets any kind of explanation as to who they are. And they basically just say, like, oh, everyone here lives for a really long time. And they kind of hint at all of these magical powers that their mother gave up by leaving to live in the in the, the real world, I guess I'll say, the main world. A couple of things of note, they use special dragon scales um, to, to craft weapons and armor that are kind of magical in their own right. And they defend against the Ten Rings army once they arrive until Wenwu releases what can only be described as soul-eating Zubats. Bat monsters that absorb the soul and kill a person and then bring it back to try to feed it to an even larger uh, soul-eating mega dragon. So we're a very long way from our grounded street fight on a bus. So it's a whole, you could have a whole conversation about whether we got there relatively organically or not. For the sake of uh, simplicity, it was fairly organic. At this point, the Ten Rings and the Warriors of Tallow very abruptly decide to work together to stop the Solidity monsters as the, uh, let's just say their earthly weapons were no good and the weapons had to be of dragon scale origin. And Shang-Chi faces off one-on-one with his dad. Uh, he does lose this fight, gets kind of blasted into the water, but he it was notable that all of his training had paid off to where he could basically go toe-to-toe with his father despite not having the rings or any magical kind of assist there. So question on that section, did you guys think, what were your thoughts on the two armies working together so suddenly? Did it bother you? Was it okay? Was it kind of like the chicken thing where it's like, whatever, we had to get to this point anyway? What are your thoughts? So I do think it was pretty abrupt. Um, I think I was so distracted by the fact that there was a mega mega dragon in the background and basically a kaiju fight that was about to break out that I didn't really care what was going on on the ground anymore. I just wanted to see a dragon fighting a soul-eating dragon. So it didn't take me out of it too much. I also thought just the fight scene was cool enough that I wasn't really paying attention that much to the reason for it or anything. I mean, I do think it was a little forced, but on the other hand... Organically, I mean, there's no way they were going to get out of this if they kept trying to fight each other while these soul-eating dragons came and ate them. So I, I guess it makes sense. I think just off of that, what Petey was saying, I, at first it did bother me, but it's just like, then again, what are you going to do? Like, if you're in that situation, you're going to tell me that you're going to continue fighting the 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 people of Talo? No, you're going to you're going to join forces for you know this greater evil. Um, it felt it felt a little cheesy, but I do I will say that the element of when they were first like cutting these as as Trey said, these zoo bats, the way they like showed the CGI of like the the sword kind of morphing through these things, they're like absorbing and like morphing around the 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 normal weapons, I guess, was pretty cool. So I I did like that element of it. And it makes sense. With that, it makes sense. You're like, okay, yeah, like, what what else are they do? Are they gonna do? So, they didn't really have a lot of options. Yeah, I agree with both of you guys. You made some great points. I think at the end of the day, yeah, it was kind of jarring to see them work together. But who wants to watch them work that out any other way? So, all good with all good with Forge Comics in that regard. We'll uh, we'll let it slide. 
So we mentioned the Mega Dragon at this point is about to bust out or has busted out from behind the gate that was, quote unquote, housing, you know, his mother's spirit. And Shang-Chi is under underwater, kind of probably on death's door here. And he somehow comes face to face with the the water dragon that lives there. I don't even know if that dragon it kind of kind of seemed like that dragon had really never appeared before. It was almost like a legend to even the people of Talo. But then the, he basically busts out of the water riding on this dragon. And I think Pete summed it up pretty cool. If you if you wanted to see a kaiju fight, this was this was awesome. I think if if you wanted more kung fu, it was a little disheartening to see the water <laughs> dragon bust out of the water and know that for the most part the kung fu was over. Um, which you know it just becomes to each their own at that point. So the Aqua Dragon comes out and starts to kind of eat the little mini soul-grabbing bats, at which point Shang goes face-to-face with his father again, kind of at the gate that's supposedly uh, housing his mother's spirit. And at this point, he completely holds his own against his father and actually goes as far as catching the rings when they're shot at him. And at the point of catching the rings, they do change uh, form a little bit. Whenever the father is using them, they're blue. And at this point, when Shang catches the rings, they turn yellow, which had happened at one other point earlier. And Shang kind of forms up the rings in what appears to be, uh, as described by Katie later, to be a mega Kamehameha blast. He just kind of throws the rings on the ground back to his father as like a sign of mercy. I don't want these things like very symbolic, very powerful sign. And at that like exact moment, basically, the solating mega dragon busts through the gate when we realizes that that's not his wife and has made a huge mistake and uses his final action to kind of put the rings back on and blast himself and Shang out of the way, at which point the dragon absorbs his soul and he's uh, he's forever gone. Um, there's a lot more CGI dragon on dragon fighting, which which was pretty impressive. I'm not going to lie. Shang and Shaoling riding the dragons and the soul eating dragon is about to absorb the soul of the, the water dragon, which would which was kind of the climax. If that happened, it was all over, at which point Katie uh, who picked up a bow and arrow approximately 48 hours before this event, shoots her first ever live arrow and pierces the soul dragon's throat, giving Shang and the water dragon the opportunity to take down the, the sword and mega dragon. At which point they've, they've basically vanquished the threat and are able to return to Tallow and uh, mourn their losses. So... What do you guys think about that final fight? Any anything I miss? Anything you want to add? Any thoughts on the dragons and or Katie's involvement in the third act here? So again, the CGI I thought was amazing. Like all of the creatures and this scene itself, I thought was done so well. Like I was so impressed. Um, Katie's involvement, although a bit of a stretch, it didn't in the end. It didn't really bother me. I kind of enjoyed it, even though. Like, the moment it happened, I was just like, mm, probably not 100% realistic. But, I mean, you still buy into it. Because it's still, you, I, I liked Katie's character so much that it was kind of like, okay, like, this is awesome. Like, she was given kind of these moments, right, with driving the bus and then driving the car. Um, and each one, I guess you could say, was like a step up. And then this one was just like, boom. <laughs> Yeah, I, again, during, while watching it, I was like, okay, that's a little bit much, but it didn't bug me too much. I mean, I've seen more unbelievable things in the MCU, so it was, it was okay, I could handle it. I will say, I think the reason why I like the dragon's inclusion so much, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later, but with this, just his embrace of the Chinese culture, um, the great protector, or the dragon in this case, is very symbolic to Chinese culture, and up to this point, we don't see Shang-Chi talk that positively about his youth and about his experiences with learning Kung Fu. It's always been very negatively towards his dad. Um, So the great protector is very symbolic of, first of all, his mother, um, and also of his embrace of the Chinese culture. And so by enjoying having this moment under the water with the dragon, riding it to basically defeat the villain is really cool. Uh, I also think without the kaiju battle, this movie would be very weak because it ends up being about a son with daddy issues. So the fact that they were able to add in something that's bigger and higher stakes makes it a lot less stereotypical, too. Um, And 
way more powerful, I think, as a story to find out that Wenwu as a character was trying to save his wife. It just that that tells better than him as just the conqueror. So I I liked the elevation to having the dragons involved. And at times I kept questioning if it was going to be organic or not. I was like, is this really organic? I was like, no, it still contains itself, though, which I mean, getting a little bit of a rant. But I the whole time watching, it, I really felt like it, it felt organic to that point. It didn't quite feel like, and I, this is just partially me not understanding what Talo is, um, but it didn't feel like the dragon was going to bust out of Talo and destroy the world. It was like, oh, Talo is going to get destroyed. And whatever, that would have consequences, I'm sure, but the Avengers aren't going to get involved. And I could be completely wrong because they they were intentionally vague about Talo, and I think I think Pete made a great point about the uh, the dragon symbolizing him embracing his culture. I hadn't seen it that way, so that was a, that was a great point. So that was kind of the movie. There's a couple other post credits things we want to talk about a little bit later, but I want to ask kind of the big question, and I'm going to start with Pete because I think I know his answer, but he's really excited, and you guys can't see his face, but he is super excited. So where, for you guys, does this movie rank in the MCU as a whole? And, yeah, let's just do that one first, and then I'll follow up with the second half of the question. Okay, so before I answer that, are we talking all MCU movies or solo character MCU movies? Because there is a difference. Uh, Just specify however you want. So I'm ignoring Avengers, Endgame, Infinity War, all that, because they're on a completely different level. And Endgame is not a normal movie. It does not count as a movie, in my opinion. (laughs) So if I'm just going movies, number one's Guardian and number two is Shang-Chi. I think it is so well put together. I think it's the best solo character development movie we've had of an introduction to a character since The Guardians where it made me really fall in love with the character who I hadn't been introduced to yet. Um, And because of that achievement of making me fall for a character I've never even heard about before, I haven't had that happen to me since Guardians of the Galaxy, which, again, that's what made me love it so much. And everything from the small street-level fighting up to these big kaiju battles, it all felt organic, it felt great, it really held its own. I fell in love with the characters. So number two in my book for for all-time Marvel movies. That's a, that's an interesting pr- perspective because I, I consider Guardians a team-up and actually have a lot of thoughts about how well they did with that. So if you if you were to consider Guardians a team-up, then this is by far the best thing. Yeah. Even I, better than Iron Man. And I, I respect that. I actually I may feel similarly. It's also, it's hard. I really quick off of that. I compare it a lot to Iron Man because this does feel so fresh like Iron Man did back in 2008 because it's the start of a completely new phase. So whereas Iron Man, I mean, it's hard to compare anything to Iron Man since it was the start of the MCU. I feel like Shang-Chi could easily become the center of phase four and I'd be okay with it. Like I I care more about him than I care about a lot of the other characters coming out recently. Fair enough. I think for me, it's kind of hard because like for me, Iron Man is... There's almost like sentimental value with Iron Man because it was like the intro for me for like Marvel and like superheroes, and it really like I mean it it was the beginning of all of this, right? So without Iron Man, it's like would we have gotten here? No one can answer truthfully, but it it'd be it'd be hard to say yes. I mean, you could make some arguments against that, but I will agree as a standalone movie, I think this is easily easily top top two for me so i would just for sentimental value i'll put iron man and then after i'll put shang chi so i think i think the list looks the same for me as with joe i think it's hard to beat iron man because it gave you such an extensive picture of who tony stark was and then stark would almost single-handedly carry the mcu through certain phases not to mention the standalone movies Again, for my personal list, I'm going to say Guardians is a team movie, which is, again, just another impressive feat. Um, the standalone movies are by far the weakest entries, in, in my opinion, to the MCU. And that that may be a hot take, but I think they typically do better with sequels. And then, you know, with Thor, I mean, one could argue it took them three movies to get it right. And at that, <laughs> point, it, at that point, it wasn't even a standalone. I mean, it was basically a team movie. And <clears throat> I think there's there's a track record of the 
this, the introductory solo movies being too much backstory and not enough impact. So that just made Shang-Chi look even better to me. So it's it's top seven overall movie for me, probably top top two solo movie. So one thing just off that I completely agree, like Ragnarok, Winter Soldier, I think they're probably more enjoyable movies, but it's because they have so much background involved with them too. And I think it's hard because the MCU, a lot of the individual movies get a lot of credit they probably don't deserve because of the backing they have, where it's like, I feel like Shang-Chi, yeah, Abomination, Wong, seeing all these characters was cool, but you could have taken those elements out and you still would have had a really good story. Whereas Captain Marvel, uh, I just, uh, I forget about that one. I literally (laughs) hadn't thought about that movie in I don't know how long. So, I mean, take out Nick Fury and the re- the last person he trusted clawing out his eye and you got nothing for that movie. So, I mean, it did introduce the, the, uh, oh my goodness, my mind is yeah, remember the scrolls. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. So there's, that, there's that significant. That hasn't paid off yet, though. That, uh, that they I only, mean, the only post- thing that showed up in is, is the post credit scene in uh, Far From Home. And in one, yeah, I was gonna say in WandaVision. She meets one the of the scroll? scroll meets with Photon. Wait, when? The very end. The very end in the theater. Wait. In the town theater. Did I miss a post-credit scene? <laughs> I don't even know if it was a post-credit scene. I, I think, think it was just the was. very last, like the last scene. scene. Yeah. Well, cut this out because this makes me look very professional. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. Um, no, I think those are great points. Uh, I think m- most people I've talked to felt that this was extremely good, went as far as maybe saying it's even saving what's been a relatively slow start for phase four. So all interesting opinions. I think the biggest question that I want to ask about the movie as a whole is as fans, right? And we're going to take off our expert caps here, but as fans... Does this assuage any concerns that you or other fans may have about things getting too big or too global? I know there's a lot of concerns. That how do you come back from snapping and killing half the universe and then Kang branching the timelines and you know dozens of potential iterations of him? Does this make you feel better that they're going to be able to come back to their roots and go street level sometimes to kind of juxtapose or, or what are your thoughts? Let's go with, let's start with Pete. Yeah. I, as much as I love the movie, there's no way you can put Shang-Chi back on a street level fight. Cause now let's take him back to the subway fight scene. And now we have the 10 power rings. It's not going to end well for anybody else in that fight. So, so, okay. Yeah, I agree with you. And I don't want to interrupt, but I just, I feel like, I don't think he gets the rings back immediately. That's that's my guess because I agree with you. I don't I think if you give Shang-Chi and maybe this is just me willing that into existence, if you give him the rings back immediately, uh I'm a lot less excited about his future. He's basically, I mean, who could which which Avenger could he not fight with the rings tomorrow? But I think that's kind of the point is they're trying to put him on that same level because if not, he doesn't he can't if you picture him in Endgame without the rings and without a dragon, What's he gonna do in that fight against Thanos' army? You could you can make the same argument about Peter Quill. They took his godlike abilities away because it's like what like you would elevate him to such a level that it's almost like you you can't really do anything with him. And I, I guess and I do agree with you, Pete, that that he's gonna need those back, but at least thematically take them away sporadically. Like yeah, in his next standalone movie they're being investigated or they're malfunctioning or they got returned to their roots somehow in Eternals and he's a martial artist again. But like, cause I don't think they're that big of, I mean, we read six issues of Shang-Chi and there's no rings. That's true. That would be a really stark, stark deviation from his roots. But I like the idea that there's an aspect of his, his character that can go galactic basically, but he's not always at that level. I so, think he'll kind of be, just really quick, I think he'll kind of be like that channel between the street-level fighters, like Daredevil and, you know, the people, the characters in Hell's Kitchen, and you can name so many others, and 
the I guess you could say like the meta heroes where he can kind of play off of both just kind of depending on the scenario where he can he can play significant roles in in either either case I guess yeah I do think they almost wrote him into a hole to some extent with the rings because in the comics Shang-Chi has no association with the rings or with the Mandarin so they did that for the movie and tied those all together Whereas in the comics, that's not a thing. He is known as the master of Kung Fu, and all of his stories are very much based off of his Kung Fu skills and him being the best fighter of everyone. Well, so, he may never use the rings again. I mean, they could Wong yeah. could show up in the next Doctor Strange and say that they're a key to something, and they use them, and then they break. You know what I mean? And I would yeah. actually bet – I would bet on that before I bet that the rings are a regular part of his arsenal, if I'm, if I'm just being honest. I would bet that they go away – I would bet that he uses them sporadically would be option A. Then the second most likely option is that they go away completely before the third would basically be the last resort is if he uses them all the time. And that's a huge part of who he is. Because then Kung Fu's gone at that point. I mean, he fought with his dad, but it wasn't Kung Fu. Yeah. Well, and and I just thought of this. It's similar to like the ring in Lord of the Rings in which the more and more his father used them, mm. the more it you know it messed with his mind it took him down this kind of i mean he was evil to begin with but the whole him thinking that he could resurrect he was hearing voices about being able to resurrect his his wife or whatever so they could play off of that as well where it's just like it's almost there's the risk of using them constantly is way too high um and it'll be interesting how they play that off of where he makes that his own choice or they even for I, I mean this might be a little extreme but for a time maybe he does go mad or he does go evil right and so they can i think there there's a lot of options especially the way that they played it off with his his dad and and the element with the the whispering and kind of the mental aspect of that i guess yeah so, i think yeah. jojo i think jojo hit hit on the head that in my opinion is probably the most likely outcome where he does use the rings when when he gets desperate enough for some kind of Avengers team up and, you know, there's another galactic threat. But on a day to day, he's probably not busting out the rings and all the potential temptations. Any other any other thoughts on that, Pete? No, I think just agree, agreeing with you guys completely. I, I think the other thing you have to think about is if they are bringing things back from the outdoor elements, it's going to be it is going to feel too big. On the other hand, maybe we'll just get Simu Lu um, doing his own version of Gollum in Shang-Chi number two. So that that might be worthwhile as well. He's got range. Yeah, I mean, we can see it. <laughs> get that mocap suit going and we're good to go. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so that concludes part one. And we'll see you guys in the next episode. <laughs>